Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about something Wizards of the Coast has done that's really, really excellent for the game and for the TTRPG community. I'm going to take a deeper look into 5e and digital interoperability. I had to try that three times to get it right. What happens when you're panicking right before a game? You, you found that you don't have enough time, your friends are coming over and need to run a game. What are some of the things we can do when time is tight and we're feeling the anxiety of people coming over to our game? What can we do about that? That's something I want to talk about. And we're going to cover more questions from the November 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome exclusive features, like exclusive adventures, tools to help you run your game, the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, previews of upcoming products, all kinds of great stuff you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. And you help me put on shows like this to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for your support. In previous shows, I have talked about what we want from Wizards of the Coast as the company that is the, the current holder of the D&D brand and creators of the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition version of the game, most popular version of D&D that has ever been produced, what kinds of things are important for them to do? I talked about the importance of a really good starter set, that as the group that is being, that is in the position of most likely onboard people into tabletop role-playing games, having a really good starter set that gets them excited about the game, gets them interested in the game, gets them into and playing the game, that that's really important. A solid set of core books that are good enough to have players pick them up, buy them, run the game, enjoy it, and want to expand into the community that's really important marketing and branding dungeons and dragons movies licensing baldur's gate 3 video games getting the name dungeons and dragons out there is something that individual creators cannot do we have not near the amount of drive and energy and and, and resources that wizards of the coast does to market tabletop role-playing games and if they're doing that through marketing of DD, i think that's outstanding that's something we want to see them to do they did something else i mean they, they have had this for a while now but they've, they've put some new things there. And there's one thing in particular I think is really cool, which is educator resources. So teachers who understand the value that tabletop role-playing games can bring to children have resources that they can get from Wizards of the Coast to help those teachers run role-playing games. And there are after-school club kits. There's a classroom curriculum you can download and try. There's, uh, a, they have an educator license for D&D Beyond, so you can get access to D&D Beyond and get access to, access to these books. Uh, way, there's a digital marketing hub where you can get information to, to, to promote it, webinars to help you know how best to do this. And this is new, a new free downloadable adventure called Peril in Pinebrook meant to be played in a short amount of time. And it so happens, two of my favorite people worked on this product. My friends, Sean Merwin and my friend and partner, Scott Gray, both worked on this product. It is a downloadable 22 page PDF. You can download it and it is the starter set of starter sets. It is really, really thin and fast and tries to get you playing the game as easily as possible. It only requires a D20 and a D6. You don't need a D4, D8, D10 and D12s and has everything you need in this packet to help you run an introduction to D&D and it's free. You can go and you can download it and you can print it and you can do whatever you want with it. It is, I, I read through it and it's an excellent primer into what D&D is like, how it works, what the flow is like, how to run different encounters, all kinds of, all kinds of things that they are, that they have in here to help teachers and students and young folks and all folks learn how to play D&D. I think that this is an excellent way that Wizards of the Coast is doing something that we can't do. I'm not going to be able to get my stuff into, into classrooms. It's actually not quite true. My wife and I usually every year, and I, we haven't talked about doing it this year yet. I have to talk about that. Usually run a, a, a grant program for people that are running D&D in schools or after school programs or things like that. And we offer them resources to be able to do so. And we reach maybe 20 or 40. This can reach thousands. So they're in a very different position to be able to do this. Anyway, if you want to see it, you can download this PDF and take a look at it yourself. If you want to run it, you can go download it and print it and run it. My only complaint is for some reason, I don't know why, and, and Wizards, if you're listening, it would be awesome if you pass this feedback along because I'm sure this helps you as much as it helps everybody else. The PDF size is 120 megabytes for a 22-page PDF. 
that's really, really big. It's actually hard to download. You can see my browser. I, I'm on a really fast machine. And look, I can't scroll because it's too big. Something's going on with the size of the PDF. If you're listening, please, I'll probably send some feedback directly to Wizards if, if I can. It would be really great because there's no reason there should be more than like five megabytes. There's, it's, it's, you know, it's not a huge PDF. And for some reason, it's 120 megabytes. And I don't know why, but I know that it is eating up CPU time and it takes time to download. And that means it's going to be harder for teachers to get it and print it and use it. So it'd be great if you could make it smaller. But really, really cool stuff. And I'm, this is exactly what we want Wizards to be doing. Outreach. Get Wizards to everybody. Now, you know, I think I, I, can't, I can't stress how important that is. And it's something that I feel very personally about. Uh, I read another article this week uh, that said that the World Health, Organiza World Health Organization, who uh, has followed on in this idea that's of social isolation and loneliness and how much damage that that can cause to people and cause to society, that isolation we even though we are a more interconnected world than we've ever been before social isolation is a big problem it's a big problem with suicide it's a big problem in violence and everything else there's lots of areas where, where social isolation is as bad for you as smoking 15 packs of cigarettes it's really really bad and D and and role-playing games are a way to help that it's not a cure it's not the cure-all it's a way to help that because it is a catalyst for us to get together with people to play games. It's a catalyst for us to meet people. It's a catalyst for us to build and maintain friendships. And that's so important. And this kind of work that Wizards is doing, this idea of putting, getting, getting the value out there of role-playing games is so important. Yes, if you're going to put your cynical hat on, I definitely have a cynical hat. If you're going to put your cynical hat on, obviously this is helping Hasbro and this is helping Wizards of the Coast try to market their game in the same way that it's like, hey, we're getting Lunchables in school lunch programs. And you're like, I'm not sure Lunchables are exactly the direction we want to go with school lunch programs. But like, that doesn't matter. In this case, the stars aligned correctly that not only is there a commercial benefit to Wizards of the Coast and to Hasbro for trying to get kids in early on playing this game, but the game is also really beneficial and really helpful to people. So it's fantastic that those two stars aligned. And in this case, we have commercial drive to push a brand as actually making the rest of the world better at the same time because it opens up people to this type of game that I feel, you know, I feel and lots of people feel have a huge benefit to individuals who are playing it and bringing, bringing together. So if you are an educator, if you're somebody that runs after school programs, check this out and use what they're offering to help bring D&D to more people. It's really fantastic. And to Wizards of the Coast, Thank you for doing this and do more stuff like this. I, my, my idea of like get wizards of the coast, giant C5 galaxies filled with tiny little pamphlets that let you play D and D and paper the world with them. I don't know. That's, it's probably a lot of litter. It's probably high carbon footprint for that, but this is the next best thing. Get D and D out to as many people as you can show them the value of this game, help them get together with their friends and build cohesive connections you know, catalysts to help bring people together weekly and regularly to enjoy each other's company, to laugh together, to share stories. That's why I do what I do. That's why I'm so interested in this. And it's fantastic to see uh, Wizards of the Coast doing this as well. Last week, I talked about sort of a, a digital utopia. What would it be like if publishers of RPGs, Wizards of the Coast, but also other publishers of RPGs, not only released their content in a human-readable format, but also released their content in a machine-readable format that customers could use in different platforms? The idea would be, let's say you have a bunch of new character options, and not only... I'll pick, I'll pick one in particular. Let's say Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press has a book called Tome of Heroes. Tome of Heroes has a whole bunch of different character options, new feats, new backgrounds, new races, new spells, all kinds of new mechanical crunchy things for characters. And you can go buy Tome of Heroes physically. You can buy the physical book. I've got it. You can buy the PDF. So you have a digital version that you can read. You have a physical version that you can read. And then you could go and license it on different platforms. But they don't offer you the digital machine-readable version to say, I want to import this into a tool like Lion's Den. Or I would like to be able to take the character options that I bought from you and be able to use them in Foundry or in Fantasy Grounds. Right? They don't really offer that as a, hey, here's the digital, the digital thing. 
I'm still getting my head around how that would even work and whether it would even be beneficial. If they do put it out in a structured format, you still have to convert it to whatever platform you're running. None of them are using the same platform. You can't exactly take a digital version of text that's machine readable and import it into Foundry and the same text imported into Fantasy Grounds. They use different systems. They use different ways. I don't even know if you can, I guess you can enforce stuff in the Fantasy Grounds like that, but you're going to have to do conversions and stuff. But my thought was, at least by offering a digital version of your product, smart people out there, software engineers who can go through and write code to convert it, could convert it to the platforms that have been going on. I made an error last week where I said that an example of this was Level Up Advanced 5e, that Level Up Advanced 5e has an official version of Level Up Advanced 5e available for Foundry in a structured format that's up on GitHub, which means you can go get the structured text of what they put up. I, I mistakenly said that this was funded by... N-World, and it was not. This was self-funded. It was funded through Patreon, and it was funded through other volunteers, and a lot of volunteer work went into converting the unstructured data available for Level Up Advanced 5e into a Foundry module that is still considered the official, which I I guess means they kind of have a little, yeah, N-World's like, ah, because why wouldn't they? They're like, yeah, it's there, sure. Also, it is based on the open gaming license that Level Up Advanced 5e uses, so you don't even need to get their permission to say it. They already gave their permission. Their permission was, we put it out on open license, you can do it, which is what most companies are doing. Cobalt Press is doing the same thing. A lot of Cobalt Press material, Deep Magic 1 and 2, Tome of Heroes, a lot of crunchy books. Books, all of the tome, various tomes of beasts and creature codices are all released. Much of the material is released under an open gaming license. So nothing is stopping anybody from doing this. In fact, many people are. I am doing it for Open 5e. Lots of other people are doing it for Open 5e. Lots of other people are doing it for other things. But it's taking all volunteer work, and it's a lot of work to take unstructured text out of PDFs and turn it into structured data that will exist in some kind of structured format that you can pass to systems. It takes a lot of work. It's very error-prone. It's very easy to screw up. It takes lots and lots of time, and you still don't get it right. But the companies are still going through that effort. They're paying people to make that structured data. And it would be great if they just offered the structured data that they're already creating and said, hey, for you people who want an open license, here it is, right? And I got a lot of different conversations from that. I got people who said, why would a company ever want to do that? You're just taking money out of their pockets. I argued that, no, I don't think you always are because a lot of time they want to convert it to a platform that you already don't support. So let's say I am using Lion's Den Fight Club 5e on my phone, right? It's a, it's a character builder that you could use on your phone. Cobalt Press isn't releasing a version for Fight Club saying, hey, you can buy it from us for $10 or you can buy it from us for $30. They're saying they're, they don't support it at all. So I want to take the data that I've got from some other system. I want to import it to a system you don't even support. That's what I'm really looking for. But there's lots of other really interesting questions about this. I talked about this with some friends of mine this past week. And one of the questions is like, when do you expect, this is when I'm still noodling through, when would you expect to have to buy a product again? And when would you ex would expect or hope that you wouldn't have to buy a product again? And I don't know the answer to this. We, we have a lot of hypocritical versions of this in other areas of our life. For example, I would be pretty pissed off if I bought a Blu-ray disc and I could only buy Sony Blu-ray discs for my PlayStation or Microsoft Blu-ray discs of a movie to play on my Xbox or whatever. Or another one where, oh, if I want to play it on my Toshiba, does Toshiba still make disc players on it? Let's say they did. Do I have to buy a Toshiba disc? Right? So that one seems totally, that's BS. I'm not going to buy the same movie on five different systems. That's terrible, right? We want one player with one standard, and I should be able to play that disc on any different system. And Blu-ray is kind of like that, right? Blue, there, are, there are multiple groups that make Blu-ray disc players. You don't have to buy the same movie on multiple disc players. But then we do say, well, if I buy a movie on Apple TV, I don't expect that I could then watch it on my Amazon device. Right. Or that I can move that movie over from Apple to Amazon. We certainly don't expect that. If I buy a game from my PlayStation 5, I don't expect that I can run that same game and not have to pay any more money to run it on my Xbox. So we, we don't have a clear standard for this. Certainly companies are happy, totally happy for you to buy it more than once. They don't mind. But we're, we mind. Now, we also get weird things like I buy movies on Apple TV. Don't yell at me. But like I do because they're cheap. You get it for like $5 a lot of times. They're on sale. And something interesting happened. When I switched to a 4K TV, all of my movies upgraded to 4K. They got better on their own. I would have thought I would have to buy another version or maybe pay an upgrade fee or something. No, I just got them. Now, other streaming services, you have to pay to get HD up there. So my point is we don't have a clear standard for how this kind of thing is going to work. So what would it look like for tabletop role-playing games? 
And I'm not sure I know the answer. I think the big one to me is if I'm getting a significantly different type of product from it or a different set of features, I wouldn't be surprised if I had to pay for it again. For example, if I buy Wild Beyond the Witchlight on D&D Beyond, I wouldn't then expect that I don't have to buy it on roll 20 in order to get the dynamic fog of war and the battle maps already set up and the tokens all in the right place and all of that stuff because that's a different product right the, the getting the setup of wild beyond the witch light in roll 20 feels different than the kind of product that i get when i buy it on dnd beyond so i wouldn't expect that but then if you say yeah if i bought a version on d on roll 20 where I had all of my fog of war and all of my tokens and all of my maps, but I can't export, I can't export those maps and tokens. And I don't know how you do that, like the shape files for fog of war and import them into something like foundry or fantasy grounds. Well, that feels like I'm doing, I'm paying for the same thing again. And that I don't think is right. Well, I don't right, right and wrong. I don't know, but I, that doesn't feel great to me, right? It feels like, Oh, I got to buy it again. And it also feeds lock-in. It feeds in the idea that I already bought it on roll 20. So whether I like the features of roll 20 or not, doesn't matter because I'm locked in. I only own it there. And if I wanted to switch over to another platform, I'd have to move. But that's where some of the new interoperability stuff comes in. That isn't really focused on data. And I'm, I'm saying a lot of things that, almost everybody knows. So this isn't a surprise, but it's, I think it is helping me anyway, get my hands around the conversation of what digital interoperability looks like for 5e as, as, as a whole platform, right? 5e from all of its different instantiations. And one example is the tool beyond 20, uh, beyond 20 is a plugin for Chrome. Apparently also has a Firefox version. I didn't know that, but it has an extension for Firefox. And it lets you use your D&D Beyond data with Roll20 and Foundry. I didn't know that it allowed you to use Foundry. This, is, this was something new that I discovered this past week because I don't really use either D&D Beyond. I don't use Roll20 and I don't use Foundry. But apparently this plugin lets you use the existing material you have on D&D Beyond while you're using roll 20 and while you're using foundry so in that case you only had to buy for example your character option stuff once and you could use it on three different platforms you can use it on dnd beyond directly you can use it on roll 20 you can use it on foundry it also allows you to directly export it to uh discord but so does avre which is the built-in plugin that dnd beyond purchased so you can also have dnd beyond export to avre as well there might be some other integrated features that you can do there so that is an example of a tool that was developed by i think either one developer or a small number of developers they have a patreon page you can you know through coffee you can you can pay them or through paypal you can give them tips and things like that so it's an independent function of a pile of code that you can install in a browser window that lets you use your information, use the systems that you bought for D&D Beyond on other platforms. Now, how do the platforms feel about this? I'm not sure. I, I imagine D&D Beyond, neither, nobody has really said anything or done anything. I don't think there's been overt attacks against it, like by changing the API or switching things around or trying to put in browser block, you know, blockers or anything like that. But... I could understand where it would not surprise me if D&D Beyond, Wizards of the Coast, basically just says they ignore it. And they would ignore it because if you want to use their stuff, you're buying your stuff on D&D Beyond anyway. It actually helps D&D Beyond because it means D&D Beyond is more useful across other platforms. I also imagine Roll20 is not happy with it because it means you're not likely to buy the stuff on Roll20. Instead, you're using the stuff you already bought in D&D Beyond. But they might say, yeah, well, whatever. I will say this. It has 100,000 users. Right. This is what surprised me. If you go to the Chrome store and you look at what it's got, sorry, I misspoke by a factor of five, 500,000 users are using the demon. A half a million people are using beyond 20. This is why I say like, I'm just preaching to people who already know this because anybody that wanted this probably already found this because it's like the first hit on this kind of thing too. But the idea that there is a plugin that you can use for Chrome with just 500,000 users only on Chrome, which is probably the majority. Pretty amazing. Right. So that's an example of interoperability that was done grassroots. Neither D&D Beyond did it, nor Roll20 did it. Somebody else wrote a plugin that lets you connect these two things together. That's really interesting. Another group called Mr. Primate is a Patreon that built a D&D Beyond importer that works in Foundry. 
you can Google this Foundry and I'll, I'll have links to all of this in the show notes, of course. But the D&D Beyond Importer is a tool that works with Foundry that not only lets you kind of use D&D Beyond side by side with Foundry like Beyond 20 does, but lets you actually draw in the information you've got. Now, again, you have to have the license to have the stuff on D&D Beyond. You have to have purchased it on D&D Beyond to be able to bring it in. But using this, you can do it. What I found really fascinating about this is it's funded by a Patreon because I think you can do all the create uh, any of the stuff that's available in, in the system re- reference document you can do automatically but anything that you are anything that is is owned by wizard of the coast that you license you also have to pay mr primate to get access to that function to be able to do it in and 10,600 people are paying monthly for that for that device they're paying somewhere between like four dollars and nine dollars a month that's a lot of money that's coming in for a developer who's from my understanding working really hard to make sure all of this stuff works you know that is a lot of money a month going to an individual developer to connect these two systems together i am both really glad that there is a way to connect these two systems together, that there's this interconnection, there's this interoperability that's done by a third party, an independent creator to draw these things together. And they seem to be doing very well financially at it. So, you know, that that's outstanding. And that's another way where you can use the stuff that you already purchased on D&D Beyond. Another one is Shard. So I've talked about Shard before. So Shard Tabletop, a smaller, uh, a small, but one that I've talked about in the show, really cool. It is the only other virtual platform i have found that lets you build characters uh, well i talked about how dnd i'm sorry last week i talked about how roll 20 now lets you build characters in their character mancer outside of the vtt before they did that shard was the only other one that let you do that and it's a really powerful feature what if i just want to have my character sheet the digital version of my character sheet on my phone you could do that with shard and you can still only do that with shard or dnd beyond you can't do that with roll 20 shard lets you import your character you can actually feed it the url of your character sheet from dnd beyond and it will import your character and its features into shard so it doesn't hoover in all of the data from dnd beyond but it can bring in the stuff that matters to you so if you want to use shard with the stuff you have dnd beyond you can do that in shard so that's another bit of interoperability that means we have three different virtual tabletops that have four if you include beyond that all have these kind of little interconnections that are done this one at shard does it directly it's not a third party that's doing it but there's ways to kind of draw all these together i'll be very interested to see if there's any kind of thing that demiplane is able to do with this i'm watching demiplane and what's going on with demiplane i don't know if they're going to draw those interconnections but it would be really great if somebody did somebody had a way that you could do it now one kind of little tricky bit with this whole thing one thing that makes me look oh it's a little bit kind of scary is that it feels like D&D Beyond is the safest bet for where to buy your, your, your D&D material. Now, obviously, you can only buy stuff published by Wizards of the Coast and one product from Critical Role. But it seems like all of the interoperability that's going on is taking what you paid for in D&D Beyond and bringing it to other platforms, which makes me a little nervous because you know me. I, I feel like D&D Beyond is already in a very strong place of monopolizing 5e. But if you're using the stuff that you have there to support other platforms, that feels better to me. It's certainly better than the lock-in of it only works there. And this brings up another one of Mike's little candles. What are the candles that are lit that are good for the community and the ones that go out that aren't? And it would be bad. A, a, a candle would go dark if D&D Beyond limited access to their material for other platforms. If suddenly you couldn't extract information from D&D Beyond to import it into Shard or to use it alongside Roll20 or to use you know to 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 get you to bring it over from dnd beyond into foundry through mr primate stuff i that would be a bad cut right that would mean that they're they're closing the walls instead of opening them up i want to see more interoperability i want to see i want to see other tools that are saying hey you can take some of your fantasy ground stuff and move it into foundry or you can take some of your foundry stuff and move it into shard i want to see interoperability among the other systems but these are all really good fantastic ways that show that there is this interoperability it, it makes me nervous to say it, but I think D&D Beyond is probably your best place to buy stuff that is published by Wizards of the Coast for a few reasons. One is there is interoperability between D&D Beyond and other platforms where there doesn't seem to be between platforms. So in other words, if you buy the material on, on Roll20, you can't then say, oh, I changed my mind. I want to use it in Foundry. But if you have it in D&D Beyond, you can use it in Roll20 or in Foundry or on D&D Beyond. The other one is, you know, it's not going away. These other platforms, let's say that Wizards of the Coast did license their material to Shard. 
what, nothing's to say Shard is going to be around forever, but you're pretty sure D&D Beyond is going to be around as long as D&D is around, I would expect. Like, could they take it down? Yeah, I don't think they would. One interesting thing is that D&D Beyond has VTT compatible maps on their... When you buy an adventure from D&D Beyond, the maps that are the digital version of the maps work really well in a VTT. They have both a player-focused map and a GM-focused map. And those you can use in any of the platforms. You can use them in Owlbear. You can use them in Roll20. You can use them in Fantasy Grounds or Foundry or Shard. When you buy it there, those maps are interoperable across all of your different platforms because they're just a map. You don't get tokens. You don't get dynamic fog of war. You don't get the other fancy features, but you get the maps. So it does feel like, especially for Wizards of the Coast content, because it's the only thing you're going to get there. D&D Beyond still seems like the best place to, to go get it. But it makes me nervous because I still feel like that's a lot of power that's given to one central pillar that we're hoping will support all of these others. Will they support it forever? I don't know. So I mentioned that I found out that the Level Up Advanced 5e Foundry plugin was actually a self-generated effort. But something else that I want to bring up that shows how I managed to use the digital text that was available is in the Sly Flourish random generator so this is a feature that is available to patrons of sly flourish patrons get access to this it is my random generator that i use for my games i update it regularly i add new things to it regularly i add a lot of different features to it it lets you generate all kinds of interesting stuff it uses material that's licensed from many different sources and it lets you build things like monuments ancestral monuments monuments of power items npcs locations diablo style dungeons encounters quests traps dmg magic items vault of magic and this is new I decided to switch away from the treasure tables of the Dungeon Master's Guide and switch over instead to the treasure tables that are inspired by Level Up Advanced 5e. Level Up Advanced 5e's treasure tables actually span the full challenge rating. So they have many, many treasure tables that go from like low CR to high CR. I really like the tier-based approach. So I picked like the middle one of the tier. For example, it generates a bunch of treasure parcels based on a particular tier. Tier 1, level one to four. I should probably put the levels in here instead of tiers. I think people would understand levels, like what level horde, what level the dragon horde or treasure horde this is. And it gives you gold and silver and everything else. It is a, to me, it is a more refined output than what the old treasure tables did. But the other cool thing it does is it links to open 5e. So when you find an item, you can click on this and it goes straight to the Open 5e description of that item. If you see uh, a feather token, you can click it and it goes straight to the feather token. This is possible because Open 5e was able to draw the digital versions of this data into their database. Some of it level up advanced 5e, some of it is just from the straight SRD. And that meant it was very easy. I used their JSON output to create a bunch of links. And I put all their links in there so that I can link out to their various items. You know, if you click on the potion of giant strength, some of these don't work. It gives you a list of all of the different potions of giant strength, what they do and how they work. So... This is all possible because of that kind of digital interoperability that we we're talking about. Explorer's Chalk. I'm glad every one of these is working. You see, this is a level up advanced 5e version, right? So this has the, the full description there. That way you have this. And a neat thing you can do is you can say like, okay, I like this one and I'm going to copy it. Bang. And I'm going to go to my Notion notes. Let's, let's just like make a new note here. Boop. And I hit paste. And I have my treasure in my notes, right? I have like a nice, a nice little thing where I can click. And, and if I click on the item, I get, I get the item. So that's the kind of interoperability we want. The ability to use digital tools in lots of different places for lots of different things. So this is a new feature, this new treasure hoard generator. There's some other new features that I have in here as well. I added the city of arches to my campaign setting. So if you want to, for example, create a magic item, a one-use magic item that uses spells from Level Up Advanced 5e, you can click on it and it'll say an ethereal natural amulet of Sulin, goddess of light. Right, that's one of the gods from the City of Arches. Lawful good deity of light, life worshipped by the village of Pete in the Dorish Hills. It, it tells you what the symbol is. That casts incendiary cloud, eighth level, level up advanced 5e. In this case, I put the full spell description here so that you don't have to click to another source. You can get the whole spell description straight from there. So you can, you know, so you can so you can you can draw it right in. Again, all of the material from this is licensed through their open gaming content license. So it all it all works out nicely. Lots of different features in the random generator. I use it all the time. I use it constantly. I'll generate NPCs, you know, and you can even have like an NPC. And when you select the campaign setting, like you can say Midgard, you know, and it'll say, you know, a Carrick lawful hunter, a brash orc of Bethal, the exiled lord from Tome of Beast 2, page 87. 
El Elspeth Northtail, Drunken Dragonborn of Bethael, the Exiled Lord. So lots of neat stuff, all available in the Sly Lazy GM's random generator, available to patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons, thank you again. You guys are awesome. What happens when you find yourself with time being too tight, your day got away from you, and oh my God, all your friends are coming over in a half hour to play a game. What do you do? Well, if you're like me, I panic. I go, oh my God, I got a bunch of people coming over and I'm not, I'm totally not ready. And this happened to me this past Wednesday. You like to think, oh, Mike Shea, he's been writing books about this stuff. Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. He is a Lazy Dungeon Master. How can he panic? Oh my God. I'm like, ah, I got really busy. Things got away from me. We had situation that came up and I was like, oh my God. I'm like, I have a half hour. And my friends are coming over and I'm not ready. What do I do? And my first thing was like, go to the Slyflourish Discord server and say, I'm not ready to run my game. Oh my God. Right. And then second was like, what do I need to focus on? Right. What do I, what do I want to get it? What am I going to do? And this has happened before. And I've talked about this before and I've written about it before and I've done videos about it before. What am I going to do to get that game back in, in order? How am I going to make sure that we are going to have a good time? And I think that that's really the first step in dealing with that situation when you're when you realize you don't have a game and again recognize this is just me and my own advice i don't have scientific backing on all this stuff there's lots of different circumstances that can result in lots of different things but i could tell you what worked for me and what i've experiences i've gotten from other gms on, on ways to think about this and one is kind of reducing down the meaning of the game not just reducing down the game itself to certain steps but the whole concept of the game what is it we're really doing here? And what we're really doing is our friends are coming over. They're going to eat some Chex Mix. They're going to drink a beer. They're going to hang out for a while, for a couple of hours, two or three hours. We're going to laugh and we're going to have a good time. We're going to roll some dice and share a story together, right? And it's easy to forget and get like caught in our game and get caught in the scope of the game and all the different storylines we've got going on and all the quests and all the things that are happening and all the character arcs that we want to tighten up and all the things that we want to do. It's so easy to get wrapped up in how big this game can be and how big our individual games can be and the campaigns can be that we forget about like what's really happening at that session, which is our friends are coming over or we're getting together online and we're all going to laugh and share, roll some dice and share some stories. And, and we only have to really worry about the next session. We don't have to worry about everything, which is what are we going to do to f fill in the time that we've got with some fun entertainment? And I think when it helps me to reduce it down to that and remember that as a start. And then there's like, okay, so now I know we're doing that. What do I ne need to do next? And I talk about it. It's the, it's the second step of the eight steps of return is the strong start. If I really am tight, and this is what I did, on Wednesday, it's like, what is going to happen? What is, what's going to occur at the beginning of this session that's going to draw people into the game and, and bring everybody in? And in this case, it wasn't like a big fight. Although, honestly, you could do far worse than have the characters get jumped by somebody. As long as it's not useless and meaningless, as long as it fits the general idea of the story, and as long as it's fun, how do you determine that? Starting with a fight's never a bad, not, not always a bad idea. But in my case, it was like, no, I'll just have something funny happen. I will have the crew, the, the characters in my game, this is my Empire of the Ghouls game, and the characters had taken a ship to an old temple. The ship was full of people who had been kidnapped to be served as food to the ghoul empire of the town of Vandekul, the, 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 the pure city of Vandekul. And the characters rescued them. So they have this ship full of people, and they're like, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in the middle of a ghoul empire. And I was like, so they went to this temple, they defeated the people of the temple. And I was like, what if they just wandered in? And they're like, so what's going on? Like, is this where we're living now? I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if the crew just wandered in and started walking around this crazy evil temple saying like, this is where you took us? So like, that was my strong start. It was a fun bit of levity and the players played off of it. And we had some fun role playing. They did get attacked by some ghouls. We had three ghouls come running out of a thing and the characters are ninth level. They had no trouble with three ghouls, but it was really fun. So it was really kind of a fun, interesting. So what is that first thing that you're going to do to make the game fun and interesting? And a lot of times that leads to the next scene and that leads to the next scene that leads to the next scene. You don't, that strong start is going to lead you into areas where the game is going to go after that. The next thing I would do and the next thing I did is like, let me get my secrets and clues in order. Let me make sure that I have 10 things that characters could learn in the next session. Ideally, a couple of them they might learn in that first scene that could then lead them to the scenes after that. So what are those 10 secrets and clues? And I wrote those down. And I remember on Discord, I was like, oh my God, I'm totally not ready. I only have seven secrets. And I'm like, oh, I thought of three more. And then I was okay. And those last three are really the good ones, right? Those are, those are really the good ones. 
One thing is like, what can you skip? You can probably skip a lot of the fancy visuals, your maps, your miniatures, your tokens, your Dwarven Forge setups. One thing when I started running games in person again after many years is I really wanted to use Dwarven Forge more because I bought a lot of Dwarven Forge. I have it up there. I love it. It's fun, but it takes time to set up. And if I have 30 minutes, I'm not going to set up a really cool situation. If I have a couple hours, I could certainly set up one room. I mean, it doesn't take two hours to set up one room, but two hours, certainly within an hour, I could set up one chamber and I could set up multiple chambers in an hour in Dwarven Forge. That would be fun to use. And I like to do it because my players enjoy it. I enjoy it. But the truth is it doesn't really matter that much. I don't think anybody missed it. I don't think there was anybody who said, oh, I'm really bummed. You're drawing things out on a white, on a dry erase mat instead of running all that Dwarven Forge you got. No one cared. No one even brought it up. And never, no one even said anything. I just brought it out there. Now, I did select miniatures because I happened to have some miniatures handy. I could have just used tokens, and I don't think they'd have minded either. The lazy tokens that I use, they can mind it. So a lot of the fancy visuals you can probably get away with and instead just draw rooms with a pencil or a dry erase marker or something like that. And then your strong start and then some secrets and clues. Another one is treasure, right? Like players like treasure. So if you if you do spend a little bit of time again, the lazy RPG, don't forget, hey, I just talked about it again, the lazy RPG treasure generator. And you say, oh, what characters are ninth level? That's close enough to tier three. Let's generate some things. And you look through and you say, this is kind of cool. Five, four gemstones of 5,000 gold pieces each. Money doesn't matter. They're in the middle of Google Imperium. A potion of mind reading might be cool. A figurine of wondrous power would be cool. Cloak of the bat, I think I already gave away. And you get to pick like which one of these things you think will be interesting to them. A couple of these would definitely interest my group. A couple of them, maybe not. Spell scroll, six level worm way. What is that? What is worm way? That sounds neat. That's from level up advanced 5e. Oh man, see, so you get ideas from this and those ideas lead to other things, but people love treasure, players love treasure. You're not gonna go wrong with treasure. Now, what about everything else? What about locations? What about monsters? What about NPCs? All those are really important too. But if you only have a half hour, it's kind of that triaging of what do I really need? I didn't need to do a map because I already used a map that the characters are still in from last session. So luckily I'd already prepped the thing I needed. I already had a general idea of what monsters I would use. So I'm like salamanders. We're doing lots of fiery monsters. So I'm doing salamanders, fire elementals, hellhounds, things like that. But then I also have my, the, the Forge of Foes monster generator so I can quickly build a monster on the fly when, when I need one. If I need a monster, if I want to have like a salamander high priestess and they don't just talk to her and they fight her, I'm like, what CR? She's CR9. Very good. I go to my Forge of Foes little generator. I find my CR9 stat block and I'm ready to go. So the real thing is not for me to offer to you what you should do if you only have 30 minutes. It's really about you spending some time to think about what you really need to run your game in 30 minutes. What do you feel like you have to have? What do you feel like if you didn't have this ready, the game could not happen and your players wouldn't have a good time? And that's what you probably want to focus on. And ideally you want to focus, if, if there are parts of it, you're like, my players would not have a good time if I didn't have a really beautiful map with great dynamic lighting, you know, maybe you want to think that through again, because if it takes you two, three hours to prep a game that's even minimally viable, that's probably too long because you're going to find a situation sometime where you don't have enough time. And what do you really need? And that's where like, I'm going to grab a Dyson map and a random encounter generator and a strong start and I'm off to the races or I'm going to do my strong start, my secrets and clues. You have to decide what steps you need for that 30 minutes. And it's going to be very dependent on you and what you want, your players and what they expect or, or hope for and what kind of game you're running. Is this a part of an ongoing game where you already have a lot of stuff prepped? Is it a published adventure where you can rely on the published adventure more? Is it fresh? Like, I don't think I could do a brand new adventure I, I might be able to. In 30 minutes, I could probably whip something up. But it's going to be different steps for me to whip that up than if I'm doing something in the middle of an ongoing campaign. So I think it's an interesting thought. And I think even if you don't find yourself in this situation right now where you only have 30 minutes to prep for a game that is about to happen and you're beginning to panic and feel bad about it, I think it's really useful to go through the thought exercise. Right. Think about if you only had a half an hour. Next time you're prepping for a game, try to set a timer. Set a timer for a half an hour. Pretend you only have a half hour and see what you're able to get done in it. And if you're able to see what you can do and see what you couldn't do and see, was that enough? Was it really not enough? What was the thing that I couldn't do that I really wanted to do? It doesn't mean you have to stop there, but it gives you an idea of what you can do and sort of building those constraints. And what I have found and what many GMs have brought up is the times when they had those constraints, the times when they had less than they thought they needed to prep 
also led to some of the more fun sessions that they ran for their group. So I thought it was a really interesting topic and I wanted to bring it up. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we post a patron Q&A. I answer every question that is there that is related to tabletop role-playing games. Some of those questions I bring here to the show. Other ones become catalysts for future articles or future videos. Matthew D asks, when do you think is the best time to change a campaign or end the current one? What's your experience in this? Good. I, I like the questions that are one sentence long, like, like one line, but they're really hard. Those are fun. And this is one of those. The answer is when it feels right, when the time, when it's time, I don't, that's a terrible answer. When I think it's time to change a campaign, I can tell you what I think. And there's usually a point when I'm running a campaign where I feel like things are beginning to narrow back down. And a few things could happen. One is I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to move to something else. Could be one of those catalysts. Another one could be we're just running out of ideas, that the quests are getting thinner, that it's really all headed towards whatever that central elevator pitch was. You're in Castle Ravenloft. You've got the items you need. It's time to face Strahd, right? That The campaign story leads to that ending. And when you feel like you're there, you feel like, all of the possible options of the places the characters could go are getting trimmed out and narrowed, and it's all narrowing down to that one central focal point. There's usually a point in a campaign, in my campaigns, that feel like that. It's when in the, the, you're getting to the pointy part of the yam-shaped adventure. Things are, are coming down to a head, that you're closer to the main bad guy. You're closer to ending whatever the main plot was. And that feels like a good time to end the campaign. There are people who run open-ended campaigns where they don't really have an elevator pitch like that. And then how do you know that? And I'm not sure. But one way is you then create that one. They, you come up with that central villain. You come up with the final thing. And it starts to narrow down and focus on that. So that to me is when it feels right. A few things, you know, one, you feel like it's ready to go. Maybe your players give you indications either directly or indirectly that, you know, it's time to move on. They're starting to ask about what you're doing next, things like that. The story is leading into a particular campaign. Just all of those things kind of make it tend to feel that it's time to end the campaign. And then you usually have two or three sessions to kind of tie things up. Then of course, my key to a good campaign ending is you have like your nice big final fight. You don't drop in any crazy Game of Thrones ending twist and turns you just get them to the ending and have them do the ending and then you hand the story over to the players to say what happens to their characters one year after the final events and you get some really really awesome stories that's a good question when is it when is the time when is it time to, for a campaign to end what does that look like and i think those answers are when you feel that it's ready when you've, you're ready to move on when the story has kind of added to that end point and when the players are giving you indications any of those or any or all of those could 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 lead that way 3v3 horizon says i'm trying to create a lazy system for npcs and their essential traits what i mean is that before a session i like to have these jotted down it's very time consuming and i often get lost in the weeds with this process any suggestions spoopy druid also has a related question which i just finished listening to the twitch show from last week and i wanted to ask zen hiker joe's question another way because i found myself resonating with the question in a way i felt wasn't addressed i like the passive voice here in a way i felt wasn't addressed by recommending secrets because instead of saying i felt you didn't address you know he didn't want to point me out they didn't they didn't want to they didn't want to point me out as having not answered that question correctly but i may not have if i wasn't addressed by recommending secrets and clues alone so if i may dig in at another angle i've often struggled to make npcs come alive for my players especially when i wrote my own adventure notes and even when i tried to be lazy and emulate my favorite fictional characters i couldn't think quickly enough and would fall flat and i wouldn't have a good time as a result i started exploring adapting old 3.5 and 4e modules to my eberron campaign and i noticed major npcs had a sort of q a section with in-character language i could riff off of to be more engaging with more fun language at the ready. Uh, it was one less thing for my Harry DM brain to worry about, and I felt better running at the game. I started writing in flavorful statements in my own NPC notes that had nothing to do with secrets and clues or plot exposition at all, just catchphrases to make that NPC stand out or a role-playing theater of the mind. What are your thoughts on planning this kind of flavor? If you wanted this kind of flavor prepped, where would you fold in the eight steps? So I think that these are really... Oh, he's there in the chat. I didn't want to sound rude. Go ahead. Mike, you didn't answer the, you didn't answer the question, or you didn't answer it the way I thought. Yeah, it's cool. So... Both of these questions are related and they both relate to that question from, from last week, Zen Hiker Joe's question from last week, which is what are some other ways, what are some other ways you can kind of fill out your NPC so that it's easier for you to run at the table? And this is one where I definitely have a bias because I don't generally do this and I don't really feel like I need to, but each of us has different things that we feel like we need in order to run good NPCs. I do think that in Event Horizons, I say it's, it's it's event with threes instead of e's. That event that Event Horizon said the only thing I trigger on 
and they hit and I say, Ooh, that's a, you know, normally I go with it, go with the gods, right? Do what works for you. Like I'm not the boss of you and I'm offering suggestions, but we should all be doing the things that work well for our game. My last session, I was just like, you know what I need is a quest and a faction quest page. So I created one because it helps me keep track of which factions are offering which quests because it's not enough to just do it and everything else. So but time consuming when you say it is very time consuming and I get lost in the weeds, that's where you're probably like, yeah, I want to relook at whatever process you're using because if it's eating up a ton of your time, it's one thing if it eats up a ton of your time, but you find it really valuable, but then you, you still get in the same problem I was just talking about, which is what if you only have 30 minutes and now you're host because you can't do that thing you think you need to do that takes you two hours trying to find the laziest approach for you that works well for you to be able to do this. That's really tricky. Uh, I really like that idea of like, what are some, you know, if you just had some choice quotes, if some, sometimes you just throw down a little bit of motivation, what does this creature want? And you, or what does this NPC want? And you put that in there, but, or if you, if you do like one good way, if it ever really helps you is what are some quotes? And I do, I, I have done this. Like I've put it in NPCs and I've put it in strong starts that I'll have the NPC make a statement. And the statement is what kind of drives the motivation of what they've got. And it's in their words. And I do it sort of subconsciously. I don't even realize I'm doing it. But if you've watched my prep notes, you've probably seen me do it from time to time, where I just write a quote of what that NPC is going to say. I have a green dragon who's going to say, where the hell are these 761 barrels of beer you've been talking about while traveling through the woods? I want that beer. That has motivation. It's funny. It gives me a strong start. It's got the fun quote. It gives you an idea what the dragon's interested in. It's got lots of things that are going on in just that one sentence. And I wrote that in without even really thinking about it. One question that the Spooby Druid brought up is, and the answer is in the NPC block. So if you're writing out your NPCs, we have an NPC section in the eight steps, and you can write out the name of your NPC. If you're using digital notes like Notion or Obsidian or something where you can link to a separate page, you can make a page for that NPC that's linked to on your notes. And in that page, you can write those choice quotes you could also if you're doing like physically you could just use note cards and you could have a note card for your npc what would be really cool is if you have a face card so you have like a picture of the npc you can show your players and then you could have your choice quotes on the other that's good too i wouldn't make in those but you know visuals are really good if you can print a copy of an npc out so you could do this i've done this for my empire of the ghouls game where i play mostly in person i open up and you're gonna you're gonna yell at me people are gonna i'm gonna get i'm gonna get email about this i open up powerpoint and in powerpoint i will drop images of NPCs that I found on the web or I found somewhere else or wherever I got it. And I will put like four on a page, on a horizontal page, and then I'll print them out and then I'll cut them with a paper cutter so that I have four like you know, four by eight sort of pictures of NPCs. I could easily flip those over and write my little choice NPC notes on the other side. And I could say, here's this person that you're talking to. And then I could see the quotes. I think that works just fine. I don't, I, I think the idea of writing down some choice quotes really works. One thing I have seen adventures do, you bring up that like in 4E, Spoopy Druid, you bring up that 4E, 3.5 and 4E had modules where they had sort of quotes from NPCs. I've seen other fifth edition adventures do this as well, where they have sort of a Q&A, an expected Q&A. My Empire of the Ghouls game has this, where like they have an NPC, they talk about what the NPC wants, and then they say like the, the expectation of what the players are going to ask and what their responses are going to be. And you could read through that. I think it's a little bit, I still think it's more valuable to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the NPC with what they know and how they operate and then just ad lib and respond to the players and their questions as though you are that person. And I, I, I feel like that is a skill worth working on because it means you don't have to prep it and it means your responses are, are less dependent upon what you thought was going to be asked and more on what the actual event is. And what you'll find is that the NPCs change. One thing I've noticed about myself is that I don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm comfortable improvising NPCs on the fly with just a name that I really don't need much else. And I will get a general idea of what they're like and what their motivation is. And then I'll just pretend to be them for a little bit and I'll see where it takes me. I don't know what that NPC is going to be like till I start talking like them. And then I see where they go and I see what their motivation is. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's all, that's all cool. But I, I would be a little worried about doing too much in this because it's, it's that same route of you're sort of expecting the game to go a certain direction that it may not go. So I think it's more useful to focus on specific things that help you understand the character and give you what you need to be able to let that character evolve during the scene that's taking place. I think that that works.
Spoopy Drew says, I find that I dissect that Q&A and take my notes for secrets and clues section and take some of that for my choice quotes list because I can't get the hang of totally improvising because they all end up kind of samey and my voices don't carry over to the Zoom mic well. Yeah, but the other one and both, you know, I'd say for both Event Horizon and Spoopy Drew is, you know, I'll say this on other things too. You can also give yourself a bit of a break. It's okay. Like we're not professional actors. It doesn't have to be perfect. I would seriously doubt your players are like, well, I didn't really feel like you captured the essence of that beer drinking green dragon as well as I thought you could have. You know, like we know when an NPC falls flat. I had an NPC fall flat on my Wednesday game. An NPC I really love. And the player's are like, ah, this guy's a pain in the ass. I was like, oh, I'm sad because I really like this guy. You know, so I, I feel like you could, I, I bet you that your players are not that worried about it. Yeah, and, Spoop, uh, and Rango says you don't do voices at all. That's cool too. You don't have to do voices. You could still say, they say this, they say that, they say the other, because people speak about them in third person. But I bet you that that is not, I bet your players aren't as worried about that as you as you think they are. Great question. And I'm glad I could I'm glad I could dig back into that one. Jason K says, I should be wrapping up my current campaign in January, February. I start the next campaign with a session zero, but I'd like to get the backstory after the party is created. I would like to include detail, family, allies, contacts, rivals, enemies, why they adventure, etc. I know I'll need to sacrifice details in order to keep it short. I know you get details about your PCs from listing in your session prep, but I wasn't sure how you do it yourself and what information you ask them to provide. How do you handle the character backstory situation? That's a good question. Obviously, it's a good question. Again, every good question, every question here is a good question because I brought it here. I thought it was a good question, which is why it's here in the list. There's many good questions I probably don't bring on the list. I know there are many good questions I don't come to the list. Don't feel bad. I only have so much time. Here, here's how I would do it, right? I, I don't want players to think too much about their characters until they've gotten together at the table for a session zero to understand what the drive of the campaign is, to understand what the other players are thinking, and to build their characters there. And then, and my trick there is I say, come with no character concepts or two character concepts and you are, and don't fall in love with either of them. Be, be ready to run one or the other. And that way they, they can sort of move between their two characters to figure out which one they want to play while they're hearing what the other players are going to pick. And I think when it comes to things like families, allies, contacts, rivals, enemies, and, and, and all of that, you probably don't want to get all of that during your session zero, but you can get that afterwards. You can get that as they are exploring their characters, certainly during the session zero. And then afterwards, you can use things like campfire tales or like tell a little bit about your history of your character and how it reminds you of where you currently are. Or you can even send emails to people and say, hey, I would like to get more details about your character now that we know who we are now we know that we're all tied together i would like to hear more about your family's backstory some players are going to send you 10 pages and some players are going to send you nothing at all so that's another thing is that some players are really into it and some aren't and i think that's okay like you can riff off of the stuff you get from the players who send you lots of stuff and you can you know draw a little bit more from the players who don't but you don't it doesn't have to be equal i don't think some players want more of their backstory integrated in the game other ones don't really care so you can kind of work on that but the key is you don't want to hammer it all into your session zero. The session zero is really to just get those initial character concepts together, set the baseline expectations for the game, both how you're going to play it and what the story of the game is, kind of get everything started. But then you can learn all of that other information further on as you go with the game that you're running and further on as the campaign goes on because the players don't know it that well either. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You can find a link for it in the show notes and you get a free adventure generator PDF and a weekly newsletter that includes an article plus all of the links to all of the other things I have done during the week. You can also join the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, bunch of tools to help you run your games, the random generator tool, City of Arches, previews, all kinds of stuff you get for becoming a patron of Slyflourish. Very inexpensive and a great way to support the show. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, The Lazy DM's Companion, Forge of Foes, and the other fantastic books available on the Slyflourish bookstore. All of the links are those in, in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day. Take care and get out there and play a role-playing game.